wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see we are still in a series, the I Am series. And as we were gathered together as a creative team this week, we were talking about other ways that this I Am maybe resonates with us. And, and somebody brought up Muhammad Ali. I don't know if you remember him, an old boxer. And and he, uh, he had this, like, I am the greatest kind of a speech. And he, he sort of, if you remember him, he had this really pompous, poetic way that he would sort of uh, deliver these um, soliloquies at his opponents. I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. You might remember all that. And, and uh, j- just with his rhetoric, he knew how to draw a crowd. And he also knew how to deliver in the ring, which was great. And so, uh, you know, he's one of those great sportsmen. Uh, Muhammad Ali, I am, right? That was his, that was his connection there. But I want you to know that, that all of that sort of bravado that he was spouting off, it, it actually pales in comparison to the kinds of things that Jesus said about himself in these I am speeches that we've been looking at in this series. And you might recall, we started this thing off a few weeks ago. Jesus, he, he has this line, he says, before Abraham was... I am. And what he does when he says that is he's, he's equating himself. He's connecting himself, identifying himself with Father God way back, way, way back in the Old Testament when, when God revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself in this burning bush and Moses was asking, hey, who is it that's talking to me? Who is it that I should say is sending me? And God answers, I am is sending you. I am. This is forever my name, God says. And, and so this I am, this is what Jesus is saying. He, he is. Now I'm getting confused with the verbs, but I, he is, I am. Like that, that's how it works. And then he goes on. He says, I am what? I am the bread of life. I am the sustenance for your soul unto eternity. And then he says, I am the good shepherd, and I will protect you, and I will guide you, and I will lead you. And and so there are these incredible, incredible things that Jesus says. And you might want to ask, well, does it even matter what Jesus says about himself? Do, Do we take seriously these claims that Jesus made about himself? And the answer is, yeah, at Overlake, yeah, we do. We, we, we jump in and we want to know what he said and we want to really get in and try to get our minds and our arms around these things that he's saying because what we believe about Jesus is that he exists in a category of one. We, what we believe about Jesus is that, that there's a complete ontological uniqueness about him and I hope you congratulate me for the use of that word, ontological. The, the idea is that, that only Jesus fulfills the role that Jesus fulfills. And so, yeah, we take seriously the things that he says about himself. We want to understand more about that. We want to make sure that we are, are really seeing all sides of, of what it is that he claimed. And so today, we're going to do that again. The phrase comes from John chapter 14, verse 6, and Jesus says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one is that we need to trust that Jesus is the way. Trust Jesus is the way. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but, but a while ago, uh, Apple Maps came out with their very first mobile application. 
And Apple Maps, uh, it apparently had been done by like a first year intern uh, with, with Apple or something. Because it was sending people down roads that didn't exist and into lakes, and it just, it was a total mess. They actually formally apologized, so we're very, very sorry, and, and they, you know, fixed it. But what's funny is we found this, this uh, couple of guys were trying to get to the Fairbanks, Alaska airport, and they Apple maps, the, they Apple maps themselves there, and it took them up onto the runway of the airport. I just thought, oh, that's a little interesting. You know, you're like, is this where parking is? And, you know, the plane. Now, here's what's interesting. Humanity really is kind of divided into two camps, and and they're they're, they're here in this room right now. But I just, uh, by show of hands, how many of you, for you, it's just really easy to trust GPS. Like for you in the car, it's so easy. Just raise your hand if that's for you. Yeah, and, it's, and that's about what the first, first service was. And then now there's another type of humanity. It, just raise your hand if it's just really easy for you to trust your own instincts, right? Like you'd rather trust yourself than GPS. Okay, so kind of evenly divided room, and, and that's what I expected. Now here's the deal. God, in his infinite wisdom, has made it his pleasure to put those two types of people together in marriage, all right? He, he marries them together. And so often in the same household, in the same car, we have this conversation going on, right? And then arguments go on and there's all sorts of stuff that happens. Tensions rise, you know, therapists are called. Like, like this is how it all works. And, and here's why. The reason why is because humans, we get stressed if we don't know the way. We get fearful if the place where we hope to go, want to go, desire to go, the destination that our hearts are yearning to be at, if, if we don't know the way to get there, there's this existential angst. Actually, Kierkegaard calls it this sickness unto death. And it's in the midst of that angst, that anxiety of us not knowing the way as humans, that Jesus enters in. And he says, I am the way. I am the way. I I will walk with you. I will lead you. I will guide you. And if there's one word that I hope just covers the way of Jesus, it's love. That Jesus walks with us in love and he leads us forward in love. And, and it's love that is the hallmark of how Jesus leads us in the way. And you might want to think about this. That Jesus' followership is most clearly understood in the terms of actually following Jesus. Some of you, I just blew your minds. But... The idea, we call it Jesus' followership for a reason, that, that it's actually following Jesus. So he is leading the way in love. What does that mean? That means we're following in love. That Jesus treated other people in loving fashion. So we're to treat other people in loving fashion. That, that, that Jesus, he had this care about every soul that he met. And so we're to follow his leading of care. Jesus included those who had been rejected. He, he, he wrapped his arms around the marginalized. He was the voice for the voiceless. And we, we want to do these same things as we follow Jesus. You see, Jesus taught love and he modeled love and he is present to help us love. And so that's what we embrace if we dare to call ourselves followers of his. I want, I want you to note 
that the very first followers of Jesus weren't called Christians. In the Bible, it, it actually tells us they weren't called Christians. That, that came just a little bit later. The very first followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. Right? And it makes sense because Jesus is the way. It actually reminds me of a Bible that we used to have in my home. My mom had this Bible. It was a living Bible called The Way. I just had a show of hands. How many of you had this Bible in your home? Yeah. I, honestly, I look at that now. I'm like, that is so cool. I mean, it's got the, the Lord of the Rings font and, uh, you know, you could just imagine Jesus right there in the words. I just love it. So, yeah, The Way, right? And, and again, Jesus, he presents himself to us as the way. It's not a road, it's not a direction, not a philosophy. It's a person. Jesus is the way. And then the next fill-in, if you're filling in the blanks, is embrace Jesus as the truth. We trust Jesus as the way. We embrace Jesus as the truth. He's the one who brings understanding and clarity. I will have you note that God's truth is not so much propositional as it is relational. That the truth of Jesus is always inviting us deeper and inviting us into greater intimacy with him, greater empathy and connection with one another. So when truth became a person in Jesus, it became relatable. And the possibility to know the truth takes on a relational quality. You know, one of the things you might want to write down is Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. It's, it's the pinnacle revelation of God's heart and the person of Jesus Christ. He's the truth. And it's interesting to note that the enemy is the father of lies. But Jesus is the one who tells the truth. Jesus is the one who leads us into all truth. And Jesus is the one who is truth personified. It's embracing him relationally as truth that sets us free. John 8, 32, Jesus says, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And again, this is not just head knowledge. It's not just propositional truth, but we're going to know the truth relationally. We're going to embrace the truth of Jesus, and this is how we are set free. Next fill-in on your outline is that Jesus invites us into the fullness of life. He invites us into this fullness of life, and we call this several things at Overlake, the abundance of life or the excellence of life, the pinnacle of life, John 10, 10, life and life to the full. Um, there's this vitality, there's a vibrance that Jesus invites us into. And, it, it, and it's a culmination of embracing his way and his truth and saying yes to his life. It's this richness of life now, and it's a life that culminates in eternity with the Lord, an eternity of love with him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he says. And at Overlake, I would say that we talk about aspects of life with Jesus all the time. Because there are so many different facets of what that is like. It's almost like a brilliantly cut diamond with so many different facets. And it's, and it's all together beautiful. But we take, you know, and we talk about each individual facet. Because it's so, so gorgeous. But let me tell you how it all starts. It all starts with trusting that Jesus is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. That when we trust him, we place our trust in him. We, the Bible talks about this. The word we use is faith. When we have faith that Jesus is who he says that he is, then we begin then to walk in the way. We begin to embrace the truth. And we begin to appropriate his life 
into ours. But that's how it all starts. It all starts with trusting that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Then he says this phrase. He says, no one comes to the Father except through him. No one comes to the Father except through him. No reason to cry. No reason to cry. It's, it's actually, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful truth. Now, here, here's what I want to say before you today. I want to say that I, I believe that. And you're like, oh, that's great. The pastor believes Jesus. I'm so glad I go to a church where the pastor believes Jesus. No, what I mean is I, I believe that this is, uh, this is true. And I, and, and I know it's not all that popular of a, uh, of a thing to say in the world today. I know that this is maybe an unpopular thing. But, but let's unpack sort of what it is because I think people have a, a, a wrong perspective on the truth that Jesus is conveying. So some people, they, they think that Jesus, when he says this, he's like this big bouncer at the door of a club. Uh, not that I look intimidating. I'm sorry. That was just, use your imagination. But, you know, he's, he's at, at the door of a club and he's like, you know, the only way you're getting in here is over my dead body, which is ironically true in Jesus' case. But, But, you know, the perspective that they would have is that Jesus is somehow the barrier that prevents people from experiencing the Father. That, that, that Jesus is somehow keeping people away from God. That's, what pe- that's how people misappropriate or misperceive what Jesus is saying here. But here is the theological reality, and we talk about this all the time at Overlay. It's that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. So he's identifying himself with the Father. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying, I'm the Father. Father and I are one. Then he actually says that later in John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. I hope you memorize that verse after this series because we go over it again and again. Jesus makes this claim again in John 14, 9. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In short, what is he saying in all this? He's saying, You can't come to God apart from me because there is no God apart from me. I am God. And so if you want to come to God, you come to me because we are one. And and so so understand this, Jesus is saying, I love you and I invite you in. I welcome you into the fullness of truth. I want to walk with you in the fullness of the way. I invite you into the fullness of life. And it's not a direction or a road or a philosophy. It's a person. It's me. Later in the Bible, in 1 John 2, 23, John writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Again, no one who denies the Son can connect with the Father, but affirming the Son is embracing the Father. Why? Because they are intimately one. They are, they are so interconnected. The theological word we use for this is we have a triune God. And this is the concept of the Trinity that's really, really difficult. I know I'm going really heady right now. Um, Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. We celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And and, uh, this is that that one holiday hosted by the family, you know, Guinness. And uh, so everybody, you know, celebrates. But Patrick, you know, he's known for two things primarily. Number one, uh, chasing all the snakes out of Ireland, which is great. I actually love a snake-free zone. That's wonderful. Uh, And then number two is he evangelized Ireland, uh, and he talked about the concept of the Trinity using clover leaf, right? The clover, which was all over Ireland. And he would grab one of those, and he would talk about 
How as he holds this one clover leaf in his hand, that it's just one thing. But yet there are these three distinct parts, uh, you know, each one of the three petals. And in our faith, it's, it's an imperfect analogy, but in our faith, there's one God we're talking about. And yet there are these three expressions of our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and I think a lot of our theology breaks down when we forget that Jesus and the Father are one. That the Holy Spirit is a part of this beautiful triune reality and relational love and, and, and creating and then saving and inviting. And, and if we don't have that in mind, then we miss the power and the beauty that is God. We miss the beauty even of, of what the resurrection means and, and the atonement and the crucifixion. Like we'll, we'll miss all of this if we don't understand that the Father and the Son are one. This is what the scripture says in Colossians 1.15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So all the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus. Now, as you look at that passage, and I hope you do, I hope you look at it, I hope you study it, I hope it's you know marked in your own Bible. As you as you meditate on that reality, that alone says Jesus inhabits a category of one. That he is absolutely unique. That there, that there is no other. There, this is not, these are not claims that are sort of casually made for all good teachers, all religious leaders. There, there's not some kind of a commonality amongst, you know, great saints. Of the, like, this is absolutely unique to Jesus himself. And as a pastor, and actually just as a human, I hope you know that I have, I have respect and I try to show honor for all sorts of different religious and philosophical viewpoints and perspectives that uh, I, I hope that you have never heard me privately or from stage ever say negative things about other religious practices or, or you know, um, uh, what, religious, yeah, practices. That's exactly what I want to say. And, and, and the re there's a reason for that. Number one is because God loves every single person who, who practices those other religions. Number two, because Jesus loves them, so do I. I, I love them, and I, I want to care for them and honor them. But number three, it's, it's a conviction that I have that by attacking somebody's most sacred-held beliefs, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus would want me to do in terms of how to care for and love them. So, so there's all kinds of reasons why I, I would not want to go negative or, or disparage or, or be disrespectful. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the positives, right? Because there's all kinds of positive cultural identity and beauty, and there's, all, there, there's just wonderful stuff that found everywhere. But here's the, here's the truth. I want to make sure you hear me say this. I don't believe that all ways are the way of Jesus. I think that, that is a, that's a non-offensive statement to say, and it's based on the person of Jesus revealed to us, that, that Jesus is this unique person. And, and it's, if all ways were just the same way, and if all ways were the way of Jesus, then how would he have to come specifically and so uniquely in order to say to us that I am the way 
and I will meet you and I will guide you in the way. Why? Because we just know this, that all ways aren't the way of Jesus. And in the same way, I just want to say that all things that purport to be truth aren't the truth of Jesus. There are so many different philosophies out there, so many different sort of things taught, and, and they're not all the same, and they don't have the same view of God, the same view of the cosmos or objective reality. And so I think it's, it's, it's not even offensive to say that stuff that's out there, you know, that purports itself to be true, it's, it's not all the truth of Jesus. And then the last thing I want to say is, is it, and it's something I think every single one of you, regardless of where you line up theologically, I know you believe this just as fervently as I do, not everything that promises to bring life delivers on bringing life. We know this, right? You already believe this. It doesn't even matter what you think about Jesus or church or Bible or anything. Like you already know that there are things out there that pitch themselves as life and they actually deliver nothing. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Number one, the, the opioid crisis in America today. You know, I, I, and I say this without judgment or condemnation, because I know it's like when it grabs hold of a life, it's just ravages. But here's the thing. I find it profoundly ironic that the high that is promised, that the, that the enjoyment that it brings, that the rush and the vitality or whatever, you know, is, is sort of promised in this thing, this, this drug, that it says, oh, this is going to make you feel great. This is going to bring life and abundant of life. And, and yet it totally steals life. And it ravages relationships and destroys potential. And, and right now, it's, it's like one of the leading causes of death in America. Promising life, right? But actually delivering death. Materialism would be another great, great thing, right? It's a, not great thing. It, sorry. Let me unpack that. Uh, materialism would be another example of something that promises life and then doesn't deliver. It promises to bring life. And, and, and it's almost like in American culture, it's become like a religious embrace that we have over this. That we think money brings more transcendence. Money brings more depth of character. Money brings more relationship. Like somehow there's this deeper, richer, fuller life that money will buy me. You know, it's interesting. When I grew up, I was born in 1970. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And I promise you, I, I had heard this saying again and again and again. It was one of those like wisdoms that you just hear. You'd hear it, you know, adults would say it. You'd hear it in radio or not radio, television shows and movies. Like you'd just come, you'd hear it all the time. It was this phrase. And, and I'd love for you to raise your hand if you've ever heard this phrase before. Money doesn't buy happiness. Anybody hear that phrase before? Yeah. You know what's interesting? I haven't heard that in the last two decades. The last time I heard money doesn't buy happiness was in the Jim Carrey movie Liar Liar. That movie came out in 1997. People don't believe that money doesn't buy happiness. So friends, this is one of those false promises. That this will bring life. This will bring transcendence. This will bring ultimate peace. You'll have security if you just have money. And it's a, it's a non-delivering promise. Right? We just have to recognize that. And Jesus, of course, he calls all this out early on. In John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. In other words, the thief is going to offer you dead-end ways, ending in cul-de-sacs. The thief is going to offer you false truths. that are, they're, they're not truth at all. 
The thief is going to come to steal life. But he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So I, I believe Jesus. I, I believe in Jesus. And I believe Jesus in this statement that no one comes to the Father except through him. There is no God apart from him. And life is ultimately found in him. Now, I, I do want to make sure that you hear me clearly. I do think that in other religious systems, there is offered some wisdom. There's helpful approaches to life. There's even beauty and poetry. There's value, cultural identity. There are times that people outside of the stream of Jesus actually get aspects of Jesus' teaching and truth even better than the followers of Jesus do. And this should stir some humility in our hearts. For example... People in Islam often get reverence for God better than many Christians do today. Or people in Buddhism often get self-denial better than many Christians do today. It's often true that people in other faith spectrums can, in some regards, live a more Christian life than many Christians do in some of his teachings. And I think that's why it's okay. It's actually wise to honor and to to look and to see where we can find God-ordained wisdom wherever we find it. And Paul, of course, sets a good example for us in this regard. You might remember this. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. And he's beginning to preach to people in Athens. He wants to reach them with the message of Jesus, this unique category of one, Jesus. But as he begins to preach to them, he uses their own philosophies. He uses their own religious texts in order to point to the person of Jesus. So go ahead and read this, and you'll notice the stuff in quotes, this is the stuff that he's quoting from their own teachers. He says this, as he's talking about God, he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God's not far from each one of us for, and here he quotes, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We are indeed God's offspring, God's children. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. In other words, he's using their own religious texts, which he happens to affirm as true. So this is, this is you know, it's, it's actual cosmologically true that God is near us, right? That in him we live and move and have our being. That we are the children of God, made by God in the image of God. So Paul's using their own teachings to affirm what's true. And then he goes on to argue, so we can't think that God is like these idols you see everywhere. We can't think that God's like a stone or like a, like a carving or, you know, some, that he would reside in a temple. He's saying God's way bigger than that, right? And he's using it to point, ultimately, to the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, again, who, who sits in this totally unique place. And it brings us to the last fill-in here that Jesus is the most inclusive Savior there is. He's the most inclusive Savior there is. And, and if, you, if it bothers you that this is not in the thing, just write it down. Actually, he's the only Savior there is. He's the only Savior there is. And, and again, we, we talk about other systems. They don't even use that kind of language. For example, Buddhism ha- has an eightfold path, and it's a fine path. But it, there's no savior in that equation. The goal is alleviation of suffering in the thing called nirvana. Islam, uh, Islam has five pillars, and, and they're fine pillars, but there's no savior in that equation either. There's a prophet, but not a savior. Eastern mysticism offers enlightenment and prayer, but no God and no salvation. 
The Dalai Lama comes pitching love and hope and peace and forgiveness. And in doing so, he communicates an incredible amount of the same things that are important to Jesus. But he's not the Savior. And as far as my studies have taken me, he doesn't even pretend to be. You know, Jesus is the only Savior. But he's incredibly inclusive as a Savior. And this is what I want to have you look at right now. This is from Colossians 1.20. This first part we looked at earlier, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. In other words, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And then look at this. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this is what we're going to look at a Good Friday coming up in just a couple of weeks. The crucifixion, what it accomplished. But look at this. To reconcile to himself all things. Would you circle the phrase all things? God reconciles to himself all things through the cross of Jesus. Jesus is the one who accomplishes the reconciliation of all things to Father God. Which means that the separation and the cursed reign of sin is now over. Because through Jesus all things. In heaven and on earth and under earth, all people and all countries, all tribes, all ethnicities, all languages, all are the target of his love. And through the cross, nothing less than every molecule in the entire universe is now redeemed and cleansed and made right with God. Peace through the cross of Jesus. Friends, nobody is excluded. Everyone is invited in. I'm out of breath, so you guys can say something. Now, what this means ultimately is that it doesn't matter where you were born because Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter what holidays you celebrate. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter what religion you've identified with. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter what lifestyle you've led. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter however else you might choose to define yourself, identify yourself. Jesus loves you. His love is absolutely, completely, and totally available for you right now, right where you are, right who you are. So say yes to his love, friends. Yeah. Say yes to his love. Trust his way. Right? Trust his way. Embrace his truth. Receive his life in yours. Yeah. I say that, and and the reason why I can say that with confidence is because, again, we're going to celebrate this in a couple weeks. It's because of the resurrection. We, we don't have, a, we don't have a, 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 you know, a leader, a, a model. We don't have the, the originator of a faith practice that died and is buried and then stayed in the grave. It's a little bit like uh, what another pastor that I listen to from time to time says. Andy Stanley says this. He said, look, when somebody can call, claim that they're going to be resurrected, and then they actually are resurrected, he says, I'm with him, you know, <laughs> what he says, right? And, and so this reality of the resurrection and, and the life that Jesus wants to bring to each and every one of us, a, a life that, that is a, a, a beautiful thing and, and a more selfless thing and a life that has more value. And I know I've shared my story with many of you before, but you know, I don't necessarily believe in Jesus because somebody argued me there, because all the theological points lined up. I believe primarily in Jesus, and I do believe in, in sort of the objective theology. I mean, absolutely, I affirm that. But I'm telling you personally, the reason why I'm, 
a follower of Jesus is because subjectively I've met Jesus. That, he, that he's invaded my life and he interrupted the path that I was on and he showed me his way and, and he allowed me to embrace his truth and, I, and he's been giving me and filling me with his life again and again and again over the course of years and, and I want to follow him for the rest of my life and then when this life is over, I want to be with him in eternity and that's what I would offer to you and invite you into as well. And, and again, there's no one who's excluded from this invitation. You know, if you want more work on this, one of the great writers, I think, the guy who was able, just blessed by God, to write really clearly and powerfully is C.S. Lewis. And two books that he wrote specifically on these things we're talking about, Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce, they're, they're great resources if you'd be interested in doing some follow-up work on this stuff. But I have a feeling that the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross is bigger in scope than we will ever comprehend in this lifetime. For some of you, that's a little threatening, but I, I have to believe it's bigger than we can grasp. And there's a reason why I believe, there's a biblical reason why I believe it's bigger. The first reason is because what Jesus tells the Apostle Paul in this simple phrase, he says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And if you just want to write that word down, the sufficiency of grace, it's a beautiful thing. Second thing is the story Jesus tells himself. When he tells that story about how uh, at the end of all things, the sheep and the goats are going to be separated out and, and, and the sheep are going to be invited into this beautiful eternity and this is all love and all joy and sunshine and bliss. We'll be with God and all our loved ones. Like it's just this beautiful, beautiful picture. But what's interesting to me, the most interesting thing about that whole parable is that Jesus says there'll be surprises. That people will be in there and they'll be like, why, why are we here? What in the world happened that, that we get invited into this? Like, how, how did this even happen? And, and Jesus will say, it's because when you loved, when you loved another human being made in the image of God, when you cared for people that were marginalized and disenfranchised, people were brushed to the side, people that nobody else cared for, when, when you cared for that person, he says, you were doing it to me. You might not have even known me. You might never even claimed me. You might, it might have been totally foreign to you, this whole construct of Christianity, but when you lived like that, you were following me even if you didn't know my name. And that's beautiful. So that's why I think that there'll be surprises. This whole work of God, I think, is so much bigger than we can get our minds around. And the reason why I, I bring this stuff up, right, is because you need to understand that some people, they have all this fear about the judgment. They, they, they know that Jesus is going to be the judge, and so there's this fear about what that might be like. And I just want to say, friends, remember that Jesus, he's a perfect judge. That Jesus has this infinite kindness and patience that that Jesus is the most outlandishly loving and infinitely graceful and unbelievably patient and ultimately compassionate judge in the universe. And so you're in good hands. His purpose is not to condemn, it's to save. Right? The scripture says this, Jesus in, in John 3, 17, he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, for God did not send his son, did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so often when we talk about this verse, John 14, 6, the conversation descends into who is in and who is out. 
And I don't want us to go there. I want us to, I think that's actually a really shallow place to park. I want us to go deeper to the question, well, who is loved? Who is valued? Who's pursued? Who's invited in? And the answer, you, me, them, all. Right? We are all targets of this incredible outlandish love of Jesus Christ who says, come to me. Come to me. Come, come to the Father and come to me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Right? That's the invitation of the Lord to us. And so I, I do think as we close, there is probably a, a so what question. So what? This is incredibly rich theologically, and obviously, Pastor, you've got some passion on this. So, so what? What does it mean? So let me speak to the Jesus follower for a moment. Where is it that you need to trust that Jesus is the way? Where is it that you've been maybe even proactively building your own way? Coming up with your own direction, building your own road or your own agenda. And where is it that you need to just trust that Jesus is the way? That his love is the way? That that's what you need to embrace. That's how you need to go. Maybe for some of us it's truth that we really have a, a tough time getting our, our minds around that the truth of Jesus is relational. And the more we lean into the truth, the more we are set free to become who we truly are as made in the image of God, as called to be children of God. So embrace his truth and be transformed by it. Or maybe for you, it's the life piece. That there are a lot of shortcuts that we use to try to grab hold of a little life. There are a lot of medications we use. There are a lot of quiet addictions we go after. And maybe for you today, you just need to lay that stuff aside. Call them out for the false promises they are. And just grab hold of the life that Jesus brings. Won't you stand with me now? Because we're going to praise Jesus in a moment and we're going to lift him high. But I want to I invite you to pray with me. Because I believe we need his help in this regard. So if you would, just, just pray with me. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the reality of your pursuit of our hearts. That you have come and you have pursued us and you have wooed us. You've, you've come and you've called us by name. And you have invited us to lay down our anxiety about coming up with our own way. And, and Jesus, we get a chance to embrace the way that you lead us on, the way of love. Lord, we, there are so many things out there bombarding us. This is the truth. This is the truth. No, this is the truth. And Jesus, we just want to lean into your truth today. Your truth, which tells us the truth about what it looks like to live, what it looks like to be a child of God. And, and so we embrace that today. And lastly, Lord, we want to lay down all the stuff that we cling to that we think will bring us life, but we know it's false promise. We know it doesn't deliver. Right now, I know you've, you've got a different 
thing in each one of our minds. You're, you're calling something right to the forefront. And so that's what we lift to you now. And we just lay it down. We don't want the false. We don't want the lie. We don't want to get lost, Lord. We want you, the way, the truth, and the life. So we ask that you'd reveal yourself now to us and give us the courage to follow you. We pray it all in your name. Amen.